Good morning, good afternoon, good evening from wherever you may be. This is Snapshots in Hockey History. And welcome to another episode of Snapshots in Hockey History, where we relive the hockey highlight reel. My name is Brett Small. As always, business out of the way first, Snapshots in Hockey History is a listener-supported podcast brought to you free of charge every single Monday and Thursday at 8 a.m., I will never ask you for a dollar out of your pocket for this podcast. But if you want to do something nice, you want to help out the show, please consider leaving us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. You can also follow us on Facebook at Snapshots in Hockey History and on Twitter at Snapshots In. I want to thank everyone for the excellent feedback we got on the Daniel Bouchard episode that aired last week. I was a little nervous to air those, not because of anything that Dan said or anything like that. I just know that most people, the feedback they've given me was that they really like guys from like the 90s and the early 2000s. But when I originally started this idea of doing this podcast, I wanted to cover all eras of hockey history. So I wasn't sure how everyone was going to react when I aired an episode that basically took place kind of around the late 70s, early 80s. But the feedback I got was fantastic, and and I even saw a few people write messages on social media saying, hey, I wasn't sure if I was going to like this episode. I I don't really, you know, this was before my time, but I really enjoyed it, and Dan told some great stories. So thank you for that feedback. I'm glad everybody enjoyed it. And we've got another one this week, which is kind of a little bit outside of that 90s, 2000s NHL, and and I want to do something a little bit different. So I actually was able to get a hold of Claude Villegrain, who actually played for the 1988 Canadian Olympic team and the Olympics in the 80s was similar to how it is now, but the training for the hockey programs was completely different. I mean, now I think everybody's so used to the NHL players playing in it, or if the NHL is not going to the Olympics, guys that played in the NHL playing in it. And in the 80s, that wasn't the case until 1988 when the Olympic Committee passed a draft allowing pro players to play for the first time. And even then, the Canadian national team, which was coached by Dave King, who Claude talks a ton about in this interview, didn't really get a ton of NHL guys. In fact, it sounds like he was kind of begging for them. And they eventually did come, but I don't know if that was the answer or those were the guys that were needed on the team at the time. And and Claude really digs into that. Typically, what we do is we cover one era, but before the interview started, I talked to Claude a little bit about his junior days and some of the racism that he faced in his career, and I actually left that part of the interview in because it still boggles my mind that in my lifetime, I was born in 84, as many of you know, that racism existed like it did. I mean, this was in the mid-80s. I was alive, and the stuff that Claude had to go through was awful, and it wasn't right, and I wanted to document that. I wanted people to talk about that because as the old saying goes... We learn from the past, so I think it's important that we remember what happened so we don't let it happen again. During part one of the interview with Claude, we talk about his junior days and playing with Mario Lemieux, and then we feed into the 1988 Olympic run. And when I say run, I actually mean kind of the run before the Olympics, because the Canadian national team and really the U.S. national team at the time, too, they all played together for a couple years. They would play exhibition games against NHL teams, college teams, different countries, etc., and then they would all go to the Olympics. But just because you played on that Canadian national team didn't mean that you automatically qualified to be on the Olympic team. It sounds like it was a huge process that Claude really does a good job of walking us through. And it sounds like there were multiple opportunities to try out for the team, which also meant that there were multiple opportunities you could get cut. By no means was that once you made the team, you were guaranteed to go to the Olympics. 
And it was almost like a four-year cycle. So from 84 to 88, you were part of the national team. And then once 88 hit, kind of a new batch of players would come in. At least that's my understanding of how it was. And if anybody has anything to add to that, please hit me up on social media. I'm still trying to figure out and get a clear picture of how everything was back then. Because after all, now, really in my lifetime or as early back as I can remember, it's always been you tried out, you made the team, you played in the Olympics, and then you went back to your other club. I wasn't used to this traveling, touring team philosophy where guys would play, tour all over in an attempt to make the club. And there really be no guarantee that after they made the team, they would even play in the Olympics. Just a few quick side notes before we get to the interview. We talked about Dave King. He was the GM and coach of Team Canada. Another guy we talk about is Guy Chiron, who was the assistant coach. Also, although we don't talk about him in this interview, Chris Felix played on this team. A good friend of the podcast who played for the Sioux Greyhounds and, of course, the Washington Capitals. You can hear his prior episode in our archives. Last but not least, just a reminder, we'll come back with part two of our interview on Thursday where we actually cover the Olympic run with Claude Vilgren. And now, let's cut to our interview. Okay, I know I said I was going to cut to the interview, and we're going to do that. But one final thing I forgot to mention a second ago, Claude briefly talks about the 1987 Canada Cup Canadian national team. That is different from the team he played on, which was the 1988 Canadian Olympic team. He actually does scrimmage and play an exhibition game against the World Cup team, but those are two different teams, and I just wanted to clarify that. Of course, the Canada Cup is now known more commonly as the World Cup of Hockey, which they're not going to do for in the near future, evidently. I think they just released that. Anyways, enough of me babbling. Here's the episode with Claude Vilgrain. I come from a suburb in Quebec City, and, uh, you know, there's, beside my brother and maybe a cousin, there was not that many black kids playing hockey. So uh, when I got to play junior in Montreal, I got drafted by a team of Laval, a team where Mario ended up playing with me there. Um, so that was my first time outside my little town and in a big city in Montreal. And I was pretty pumped. I was, I was a surprise pick and a surprise for me to make the team. My first game was against uh, Montreal Junior, and I was playing with Laval, which was across the river. And uh, uh, that was the home game. Got on the ice, pumped. The place was packed. The fans were going crazy. Cross over on the other side of the net, and I get on the Montreal fan side, and uh, and they start making uh, monkey sounds, bula uh, bula, go back to Africa, taxi taxi. I guess there's a lot of Asian taxi drivers in Montreal, so that is just. I never experienced that before, besides the old, uh, hey, Blackie, when I play against other players. But that, after that game, I swore myself I would never let that bother me on the ice. I couldn't, I couldn't do, I couldn't play. I wouldn't, I didn't want to go on the wing on the, on their side and face off because I was getting, getting hackled. I said to myself, I would never let that happen again. <laughs> no, it's interesting. There was a quote that I love that you said, and I almost texted this to you while we were talking. Mm. They said, you know, how does it feel to be a black player in the NHL? And you said, I never looked at myself as a black player in the NHL. I looked at myself as a hockey player. I loved that line because to me it was, look, okay, so what? I'm different. Big deal. But you know, I'm not like, every, not, not even different. I'm not like everybody else, but what does it matter? That was part of my life. I was... Uh... And uh, the time people would uh, remember that is during um, 
team pictures. So there's always the same jokes. Like, uh, one of my friends would come in with a, a pack of matches and one burn. Hey, that's, this is our team picture. Or, or when I look at myself, uh, a, a reflection on a glass, then I realize, oh, yeah, I'm... I'm, 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 I can see black also, but I had to uh, deal with it. And for me, me dealing with, with it wasn't the problem. It's maybe coaches or management or I, I had some coaches in that old school and uh, you could tell the coming from the Quebec League, French, uh, not uh, knowing the language as well and being black, you know, the unknown uh, ignorance a little bit. People didn't know how to deal with it, and uh, that uh, on on certain teams, you know, ended up being a roadblock. But but uh, for me, I just I was just another guy, just another guy. I I, I played the same way. I after I, I was friends with everybody. I hate if I hated somebody, I hated that person the same way as another guy, and I played the game the best as I could. But it's Every time since I'm a little guy, I go to tournaments in a small town in Quebec, and I could see people pointing, look, look, there's little black kids on, on the ice. And I uh, experienced that again when uh, I was in Europe. I want to touch on that big time because I want to talk a lot about some of the international travel. But I have to ask, since you yeah. brought it up, and I know this isn't on our topic, but how was playing with Mario Lemieux when he's 16 years old? I mean, he was one of the greatest players of all time. And I think you guys played on the same line together, right? Yeah. Well, the funny thing is I was double a midget. Uh, I didn't want to play triple a. I wasn't going to play. I wasn't going to play uh, junior after that. My dad wanted to make sure I go to school. But after a provincial tournament, I played so well, all the scouts were all over me. And then I got drafted late, but, after uh, negotiating and dealing with my parents, my parents let let me go to uh, the camp in Laval, and I made the team. But the funny thing is, we made the team, but we only had like three or four returning players. Oh, and obviously we finished last. And he, and after Christmas, it was easy to figure out why, because uh, in the next draft, uh, was a, a little kid from Montreal, Mario Lemieux. Him and Sylvain Turge are top two prospects. And obviously, they knew that was the second year of the new management, and they, they knew they needed to get uh, Mario to get going. And, and uh, we finished last, and we picked Mario. And uh, I, was in, uh, I was on his line. I was a, I was a center also, so I ended up uh, going from number one center to uh, number two center right after the draft. So. <laughs> So they actually purposely kind of took the dive, and I know there's a lot of talk about NHL teams doing that, but you think your junior team at the time kind of held back oh, yeah. a little, yeah, so it was pretty obvious? Yeah. Well, the team was in who they had selected. They were new ownership. Yeah. Uh, the owner was a coach and manager, and so uh, you saw Pittsburgh doing it, and they got Mario, so yeah. yeah, you know, you do it, and it's a game changer. You know, the franchise, Pittsburgh franchise uh, changed when they got Mario, and they changed again when they got Sydney. So, so one guys, you know, only once in a while they come around. The thing is, the funny thing about Mario uh, is that he came in the dressing room at 15, and the radio, was, you know, sports radio was on in the dressing room, and every channel, uh, Mario this, Mario that, watch this kid. 
and then uh, we had to play with uh, Cooper hockey stick. They were they had a tree trunk that curved A, B, and T, and one pair of skates. And every day we had the Cole stick, Sherwood stick, Bowers stick. Friend, <laughs> everybody wanted them to try their equipment. So there was like a storage room with just his stuff, and we're and we just want to try one of those sticks. But he was the kind of guy, a cocky, I would say he had the swagger, he was confident, but not cocky that you would hate the guy. He was a nice guy. He would make, you know, he obviously he was the best player on the team at 15, but you you, uh, you never hate him. Everybody got along well with him. I played with, with Superstar, and then they were arrogant, entitled, and uh, Mario... It's almost like he didn't have to be like that because everybody around him was about him. Uh, we had the same agent, uh, which was Gus Badelli, and Gus Badelli had Gretzky, Awachuk, all those players. So. But no, um, Mario was a good person, a very uh, sincere and um, loyal person. And you saw that when he, he became an owner, even as a player. Uh, he, he was able to get some, some of his friends or people uh, try out to for the Pittsburgh Penguins, and he did good for Pittsburgh. I could talk to you all afternoon about this stuff, but I know you have a life, and so we'll kind of get on the, the topic. And one of the things that was fascinating to me is when you play for the Canadian Olympic team, it's not seven games. You guys in the 80s were like touring almost. And yeah, I know that you were drafted by Detroit, but ended up going to university and then wound yeah. up with Team Canada. Can you kind of walk me yeah. through how that went down? Yeah. So the second year, that's funny how that goes. The second year, Mario was our best player. And then there was a big uh, rivalry with Pat Lafontaine. Uh, they were uh, neck and neck in the scoring championship. And uh, just before the world championship, Mario uh, was leading by about 20 points. And he went to the world championship. And Pat uh, didn't go to the world championships. So uh, Mario went to the uh, World Championship, barely played. When he played, he scored a ton, but barely played. He hated the experience. But by the time he came back, Pat was about 30 points ahead of him by January. So it's almost like Mario almost shut it down. And then the team was struggling, and then we didn't make the playoff the year before. So that's funny. It's, it's just like I, I took the leadership. I raised my game, and I had a heck of a second half. And in the playoff, I was like, I was basically the the player, and then uh, that's what got me drafted by Detroit. Uh, I was a third, a sixth round pick just because I, I played great the second half. Mm-hmm. So no, not enough a sample to see what I could do on a full season if I could maintain that pace. But just the fact that Mario wasn't Mario anymore, and then it's, it's like I uh, I took over, and then. I got drafted. So I got drafted by Detroit in sixth round. And uh, at the greatest summer, doing a charity event, I'm going. I, I was training hard. I want to make the team so badly. So, But the team was sold to the Illich family two weeks after the draft by the Norris family. Mm-hmm. So by the time training camp rolled around, I never got an, inv- an invitation to camp. So I didn't know what was going to happen. I was waiting. I was waiting. Finally, my agent told me that the Villano and the new organization, they wanted to clean up the uh, uh, organization. Uh, they had too many players. They had players in Kalamazoo, Adirondack, junior players. 
they want to see everybody at camp. They want to try to get rid of people. And then only Mary Craven got invited to the camp and got traded to Flyers. So everybody else got dumped. So that was one of the hardest moments in my life. So I got offered to go to Kilimanjaro, get paid 12000 a year. And then my dad said, no, go to school. And then so I went to Moncton and went well to Mon- Moncton. I was all Canadian one year, MVP of the league, and then I got invited by Team Canada and made the team. So that's how I ended up with Team Canada. Within Team Canada, I invited the different NHL camps, but I wasn't going to any of them. My goal was to play in the Olympics. When you were not invited to camp, you said many other players were invited as well. Did you feel that that was an excuse for, hey, we're just a new ownership group and we personally don't think you have what it takes? Or was it the case of, we're just cleaning house and we're letting all these guys go? Both. Both. Obviously, I was in, you know, new ownership. I don't think they would have drafted me or none of the other guys. And because I had a good year, so they offered me a 25-game tryout with Adirondack as well. No NHL camp, but I said, well, I don't want to start doing this. I'll, I'll go uh, I'll go to school. You would go to school. And does the Canadian Hockey League have their program in place at the time? Were they help pay tuition, or was that on you and your family? The, the Moncton the team gave me a little – they had a little scholarship. Basically, played the tuition and the um, – Room and board, that was it. How was the university hockey? I've heard different things, because you don't see a lot of guys come out to the NHL level out of university hockey in Canada. Yeah, but more and more. Uh, what's happening is most of the, the guys playing university, they, they came from playing and not being successful, playing junior type of thing. Mm-hmm. But uh, the hockey is better. Some guys get, get some shots, but, you know, by the time you get there, you're 22, you get out of there, you're 24, 26. And there's so many good players with the European stuff like that. But when I was playing in Moncton, Moncton was a very good program, very good league, better than the Quebec League and Ontario League, even Western League. Uh, won a couple of national uh, championships. Uh, but the hockey is better now because most of the teams are uh, you know, uh, made of a lot of W Ontario League hockey players. So. Former major junior guys. So the president of the Athletic Federation in 1986 says he has no doubt that the next few weeks, the General Assembly of the National Olympic Committees, they would draft an athlete's code that basically allows pro players to play. Yeah. That's kind of a new thing because previously it was all amateurs, except for the Russians, which were only really amateur in name. At the same time, Dave King announces that he'll be cutting up to 12 members of the current national team. He just feels that they're better players and he is going to be letting a lot of his evaluation team go. So May 21st through the 25th is the initial evaluation camp. And I just, do you have any memories of that initial evaluation camp? I know that you told me you played on a line with Vinny Danfus and Jocelyn Lemieux. Uh, was it mainly scrimmages? Was it drills? What kind of what was the rundown well, of the pre camp was just a drills and the scrimmages. Morning practice and scrimmages and then and see who's gonna be invited for the main camp. But the program was all already going on for two years. Uh, mostly amateur players. And uh, by the time I got there we had the uh, minor leaguers, not any any NHL guys, but minor leaguers. So basically, during the camp, uh, we we were 
We had a camp. Uh, we went to uh, Kiev and Germany and Russia to play some games. We were pretty short, about like 16 players. Oh, man. By the time we got back, basically it was way, waiting for the NHL cut, and we got some uh, American League players. So we had, our team was made of a bunch of minor league players. And uh, but the ruling for pro players wasn't I don't know wasn't not the ruling but NHL play, uh, teams letting players go to our team they didn't want to do that so we uh, played all season long we started like the second of the year of the Olympics so we had uh, in a in a camp we had uh, two exhibition games against uh, Canada Cup Team Canada that that's another funny story that one. So we're, we're flying to uh, Cape Breton in New Nova Scotia. Mm-hmm. Uh, we played a game. Uh, we lost seven to three, but they scored about two, three goals late in the game. But we were skating toe to toe with them. They had Messier, Glenn Anderson, Lemieux, Gretzky, Eisenman, all those guys on the ice. And uh, the second game we go to Newfoundland. Then uh, they had a different lineup, smaller rank. They had like Tuckett, uh Wendell Clark, Claude Lemieux, and a tougher lineup, and Gretzky had to play, obviously, because fans were paying at the time, which was a big money, $50 to watch. So by the time I got on the ice, we were down 3 nothing, And uh, when I got off the ice, we were down 5 nothing, and Gretzky <laughs> had four points already. So it was 9 nothing the first period, and then uh, in, uh, we're in the dressing room, and then for us to prove we can play in the Olympics and be competitive, and then Dave King walks in, and he tells me and a couple of guys, uh, Ray Cote, Don McLaren, hey, you guys are together. So the boys are going, let's go, that's a big second beer, guys. And then uh, Kinger goes, you're going to the other team's wrestling room, they got jerseys for, uh, for you. And then that's when we realized we were getting traded, just Whoa. to make the game more Wait so a second. That was one of the most... You guys got traded in the middle of a game? So you ended up playing yeah. on Team Canada for the Team Canada Cup? Yeah, fifty dollars. <laughs> so it was a lot of money for the fans, and then uh, it's a blowout, nine nothing after one period. So I got in the dressing room. I was sitting between Dale Awardchuck and uh, Mike Gardner and uh, Patrick Wall and next door. They're sitting in front of me, and uh, it's pretty quiet. I think there's a lot of guys that are not too happy because there's a lot of competition and a lot of people want to play and that arose, but. Oh, I was good with our Chuck and Mark Gardner on the ice. I was very good, but uh, we got on the ice and we're skating around and slowly you could hear the fans mumbling things and it got louder and louder and then they realized the rescue was skating with our Olympic team jersey and then the game ended up to 12 to 1. But sure that and they realized we need uh, we need more players. Uh, we're not good enough to uh, for the Olympics. So, but we got better as a team, got better and better, and then, uh, and then uh, after uh, three months after uh, Team Canada uh, uh, beat the Russian with Mario's goal at the Canada Cup, uh, we beat the Russians in Russia on their own ice and uh, the Azizia Cup, and we knew we could skate. We we were we were going to be competitive, but. I that if we can back up a little bit, I kind of wanted to talk to you about the Azvista Cup from '86 first. Yeah, you yeah. are you know a young guy. You're probably what 23, 24 at the time. Yeah, and you get on a plane, you fly across the world, and you're going to the Soviet Union while yeah. the the Cold War is you know it's ending, but it's still going on. 
Can you describe your first thoughts when you get off the plane and what the living conditions are like over in the Soviet Union? Well, that was uh, that uh, that was the second Izvestia Cup. But the first time we went there, first of all, is all our trips, especially when we were in the Eastern Bloc, is hurry and wait. We would be waiting at the custom just to go through custom for two hours, three hours, and then get on the terrible air of flood planes and almost scary. And then uh, so we get to the rink and you, at the hotel, you know. Hotel, the beds are hard, the soap is hard, the towels are like sandpaper, and the same for the toilet paper. But, but to me, I, I always want to leave uh, the experience. And then, so we got on the ice, uh, first game against the Russian, and I was centering Gorchervin, I think it was uh, Brian Bradley at the time. And uh, across from me was Larry Onoff, Kutov, you know, the top five with Fatisov, because I told him. And I don't think we touched the puck once in the first period. Almost like we wanted to ask the uh, the ref to a second puck to play with. Oh my gosh! And that was I thought I was a good player, but I realized I wasn't that good. So fast forward the second year, we go to second Vestia uh, Cup. Sean Burke was unbelievable in that, and we beat them three two. And then. They weren't expecting that at all. The fans were whistling, booing. Everybody seems to be <laughs> mad. And then, and then uh, you know, after any uh, international competition, you have to play the national winning team. And they didn't have any Canadian one. They only had the Russian one, so they played the Russian one. <laughs> so we were singing "Oh Canada" as loud as we could. So. <laughs> but we're talking about selection and stuff like that. Uh, I think early on that year, they were looking, negotiating to get more NHL players. And uh, by the time we were done the Zestia Cup, we were like, the, uh, the Russians and the Swedes, they respected us because we had some uh, friendly games and we beat them. And then, uh, but I think the wheel was in motion already. So two weeks before the opening ceremonies, went to a couple of games against the Swedes and the Russians. And when we got back at the airport in Calgary, uh, Dave King was talking to, uh, had some one-on-one meetings with a couple of players. And then we, from the bus, we saw them taking a cab with their hockey jersey on. And then we got just some NHL guys, Poplensky, Bambellini, Tim Waters, so the whole chemistry of the team got just destroyed, and I think that affected us a little bit. They bothered the NHL to get pros for so many months that they had to take anybody almost. But uh. Well, I wanted to talk with you about that because it seemed that the roster was constantly changing. You had guys constantly signing with NHL teams, leaving the team, yeah. and then coming back. How do you develop any chemistry with these guys? Because I, I feel like you're almost playing pickup games with just some of the best players in the world? So what was happening was, uh, I think I played with 100 players. We had a car guy, and then we would pick up guys here and there, and then that was a way to evaluate uh, who could play. And then uh, they weren't good enough, so they, they, they wouldn't come back, but we had a core. And then uh, I think by this, the last year, we are pretty much the team. And I got disturbed when uh, we got those NHL guys. So now we were playing well. We were skating toe to toes with all the Europeans. It took us two years, and but we were right there. I think we had, we would have chance 
with the same team uh, to create an upset. Uh, we lost one game. There was a wrong game to lose. We got we got into the playoff round with uh, only uh, one point and Sweden uh, two points and Finland three points. And then uh, we lost to the Russians, but we played well against the Czechs. And now we're playing very well, but because of the system, uh, we ended up fourth. But uh, yeah, that was my experience with Team Canada. I'd like to go back. There are a couple other things I'd kind of like to get your opinion on. One of the things is you talked about how busy you guys were. I mean, NHL teams, they play an 82-game season, but they're doing half at home, half on the road. You guys did not have any home (laughs) games, it seems like. You'd play a five-game exhibition in Calgary. The travel, you know, I know Guy Chiron was quoted as saying there's so much turnover because of the travel. How did you (laughs) cope with all that? Well... <laughs> Sometimes I wanted to quit, to tell you the truth. So, just to give you an example, uh, let's say we're in Calgary. If we spent two weeks in Calgary, well, it was tough to find national teams. We had to wait for the national teams to get uh, their breaks in our season, the club teams, and then get together. Then we would go and play as many games as possible. So, basically, uh, let's say there's a select Russian team, B team, would come and tour uh, Canada with us. So, we would play a game in Calgary. Then we would go to Lethbridge. Then we go to Saskatoon. Uh, no, we this, the next morning and play that night. Then we go uh, play another game in Northern Ontario, and we might finish and uh, play Quebec and Halifax. And from there, we would fly to uh, Germany, uh, practice a couple of days, and then fly to uh, Sweden. Uh, maybe play a few games against Norway, Sweden, and Finland, or go to the Svezia Cup. But and we had something every day. Uh, I remember that one of those trips, we got to Stockholm. Again, we had to wait two hours before going to uh, customs. We're tired. Take a two-hour bus to play in Little Town, uh, Yavlis. And then we got there four in the afternoon, and we checked in. And then Dave King said, goes, uh, yeah, let's go at uh, uh, the rink. We got to get our leg, uh, legs going there. So I, I wanted to have a nap. I wanted to quit a, a quit the team, have a nap, and then ask to be back on a team. That's our heart. And one of the things they they would tell us all the time, you got to learn to play fatigue. Got to learn to play fatigue. And you know, I wanted to make the team so bad that I would have done anything. And I still managed with one of my buddies on the team while everybody else was sleeping. I managed to go visit Warsaw visit the uh, concentration camp in Poland, see the, the wall on, you know, on the east side of Germany. I managed to take a lot of pictures and enjoy life at the fullest. But that was hard. It was hard. On the, I'm, I still got some uh, uh, flyer points from those years. <laughs> <laughs> Who was your buddy that went with you and was willing to, uh, to wave sleep to go sightseeing? Yeah, well, his, his name is Don McLaren. He was an all-Canadian. He's uh, the only one to spend all, the, all, the, all four years in the program. And he he, he had a contract problem with uh, Dave King, uh, I think, and then they ended up parting ways. It's one of those guys at the airport the day before the openings, yeah. and they got sent in, and then he went to play uh, in, in Switzerland. But, uh, yeah. He uh, he wanted to experience life too. We had good cameras, video cameras. I did the moonwalk in front of the Kremlin, so <laughs> I, I so 
I'm just laughing. I can only imagine when you're in the Soviet Union is the 80s. And I don't know if you've ever seen this movie is just Red Heat where it's a Schwarzenegger movie and there's nobody around and it's just gray and dark. I mean, that's what I picture. Is that an accurate depiction or is that just Hollywood? There are are people around. There's a lot of cops that are tourists, but a lot of Russian people and then they I had my Jerry curl, like the soul glow, and then <laughs> I did the moonwalk, and people are watching me. I did a long moonwalk, just make sure everybody noticed that. That's something I, I was doing everywhere I went, and uh, I, I did the moonwalk just uh, as a souvenir. So. A couple of highlights that we've kind of jumped around a little bit, but one thing I want to get back to is June 19th of 87, there's another evaluation camp, but... The Vancouver Canucks and your agent come to an agreement, and it looks like you're signed by an NHL team. And there were some other teams that were interested, and I'm just curious why you chose Vancouver over the Jets, the North Stars, or the Flyers. So uh, I didn't have an agent per se, and then Dave King was going to uh, wanted to negotiate my contract, and that's he wanted to do that to make sure that he has the the right so uh, I'll be around for the Olympics. But Dave was busy, and then talking to Lou Nanny, and I was talking to uh, Pat Quinn and Brian Burke, and I talked to Herb Brooks as well. So Lou Nanny told me that they, they want to make a trade and move Bellows to the left side. They wanted me on the right side, and it sounded all good, but, you know, didn't seem to have a spot for me. And then, and then uh, Pat Quinn and uh, Brian Burke came to Calgary. They watched me uh, practice, and they... They wanted to change the team around. They just, they were the new management, and they thought I would fit very well. But at that time, they didn't have a coach. And uh, they flew me into Vancouver, and then it was beautiful, sunny, and then I went fishing, golfing, and uh, seafood, and then I ended up signing on uh, Pat Quinn's, uh, the hood of his Beamer with his wife, uh, so I ended up with them, and then uh, they hired the coach. And uh, and by the time I got to Vancouver, the coach asked me what position do I play. It's almost he didn't want me there. And then and it was raining every day. So there are so many things in this interview that I just can't get over. For one, the fact that he signed his pro contract with Brian Burke on the hood of Brian Burke's car. I just thought that was great. Let's also talk about doing the moonwalk in front of the Kremlin. I mean, that's pretty funny. But on top of that, I guess what I take away most is how ridiculous this travel schedule was. Oh my God. It was insane. I mean, one minute he's over in Europe, the next minute he's over in Calgary. You definitely can't question the heart and dedication of anybody that went through this program because it does not sound like it was a Kate walk and it also doesn't sound like they were really making a lot of money doing it. Please don't forget to swing by again on Thursday at 8 a.m. to hear part two of our interview with Claude Vilgrain. We'll see you then.